Today's scripture is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Thank you. Uh, please be seated. Good evening, Redemption Tempe. How you doing? Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Benjamin Jensen, and I am a director here of Redemption Communities and Sunday Services, and I'm really happy to be with you. I, I always love these All of Life interviews. I'm so thankful for them and that we do them here. Not every church does, and I feel like, and Erin especially was great. She, she did that like a boss. So it was, uh, it was, re- it was really, really good. Um, uh, here's, here's what we're going to do today. Uh, we, we've been in the Summer 5 series, you know, tackling five tough issues in the Christian life. And so um, Ricardo started with spiritual gifts and singleness. Tyler Johnson went through marriage and talked about some of those things. Last week was Sean Myers, and he talked about how to read hard biblical texts. And, um, and today I get to tackle the end times. Um, sort of the way that this came about was that the elders are kind of asking, well, um, this is one of the topics, and, and Benjamin hasn't preached here much so let's give him a topic that's pretty easy and non-controversial. Um, how about the end times? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And uh, the truth is, actually, I'm, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm really excited to, uh, to be able to tackle this with you. Uh, it, it is an important topic, and hopefully I can, I can show that, and, and we want to look at the scriptures together, and we, we land at different places in some things, and that's fine, but in the end, all Christians must land at this fact, this truth, that Jesus is returning bodily, and he is making all things new. And that's a beautiful truth. That's part of the good news of God's kingdom. And so we're going to jump into that, and I hope it's going to be really good. I'm excited to do so. Um, let me pray, and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you uh, that we have your word. Thank you for revealing yourself that way. God, would you, would you send your spirit here? Be with us. Um, Help us to be more like your son, Jesus. Uh, shape us and give us great joy in you and your truth and the reality that you are a God who loves us and you will never leave us or forsake us and you are, you are doing something in this world that is profound and will never be undone. And so, God, we praise you for that um, and gi- give me words to say. Help me to be clear here. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so, um, you know, Along with this kind of preparing for this, you know, thinking about this and, and praying through this, and one of my prayers would be that uh, I get to offend all of you equally. So we'll, we'll see if I can do that. Um, uh, I'm going to read a quote. This quote, um, well, I'll start, I'll just read it first. Here's a quote. Our earth is degenerate in these later days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book, and the end of the world is evidently approaching. End quote. Now, you might say, okay, yeah, 
uh, earth is degenerate in these later days. Uh, children don't, don't obey their parents. The end of the world is coming. You think, okay, well, that's from some blog or from some, some headline or, or some, some preacher maybe or something like that. It's, it's from 5,000 years ago on a clay tablet from Assyria. 3,000 B.C. was when that, that quote was from. Just, just to make the point that, that asking about the end of the world, asking about the end times, the apocalypse, is nothing new. We, we have been asking about this for as long as we have recorded history in humanity, and we've been fascinated by it, and we've been wondering about it. And, and so uh, this, this is something that we get to ask now today. Uh, I'm going to start with just why are we fascinated by, by this stuff? Why in culture? Does, this, does it look this way? And we'll move into some texts about the kingdom, our text, that the end will come, that, that, that Brittany read, and then at the very end, we'll, we'll hit the end of the end. What's, what's the purpose of all of this? So that's, a kind of, that's where we're going. Um, before we get there, uh, I want to just raise your hand if you need a Bible, okay? These guys are going to come and hand out some Bibles. So raise your hand nice and high if you need a Bible. Let's ask this question. Why are we fascinated with the end of the world? Why? Like, what is it about the end? What is it about the apocalypse that really grabs us and holds us? What is it that keeps our attention, okay? Um, in, in the 1930s-ish, somewhere in there, I think it was, there's a guy named Orson Welles, and he did this radio broadcast. And, and that, was, that was kind of the TV of the day. And in this radio broadcast, it was called The War of the Worlds. And they would do these kind of theatrical broadcasts in this radio booth with actors speaking and doing these things. And in, in the middle of one of their broadcasts, I think they were just talking about something, you know, some funny little skit or something like that. And they had this little, um, this little news flash. Beep, 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 beep. That's how the news flashes used to sound um, back in the day. And, and, and it came in and said, breaking news. And this kind of newsy-sounding fellow came on and said, the earth is being invaded. The earth is being invaded by aliens. And they are attacking the earth, and they are powerful, etc. These things happening. Now, it was a radio broadcast. Like, it was meant to be this thing that was entertaining. It was a drama. But people freaked out. They absolutely lost it. And, and the people ran out in the streets screaming, people calling the police. There's, there's sirens and fire trucks going every which way. There's almost riots happening, and, and people are running out and driving their cars, and there's car accidents and, and, and congestion trying to, trying to get out of the city and all these things. The people thought the end was coming. And this news broadcast was really well written. They're like, you know, the end is coming. The aliens are coming to New Jersey or something like that. And, uh, and they're landing, and so look out, and, and people lost it. Now, in that booth, in that radio booth, they were thinking, hey, this is a good radio broadcast. You know, they're done with it. They shake hands. Good job. Good job, kind sir. You did well with that. And they open the door from the radio booth, and it's pandemonium. Now, now why does that happen? Why, why, are people, why, why are people so gullible? Why do they eat that up? There's something about, about our makeup and about our society in some ways that, that, that prevails that the end of the world is exciting and terrifying at the same time, and we can be susceptible to, to, to falsehood about it. Uh, here's, just, here's some other things in our, pop, in our culture that, that are about the end of the world. There's songs. Um, I'm kind of a, I was a, a bit of a 90s kid, and so uh, there's an R.E.M. song called The End of the World as We Know It. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's how the song goes. Um, there's another one from a little earlier by Prince, um, and, uh, and that, one, that one goes... 2000 party over, out of time. But tonight I'm going to party like it's 1999. 
What, I mean, it really, that's a great lyric, right? It's written in the 80s, and, and that's the thing, and it was, a, it was a catchy song, and all these kids are dancing to it, and, and um, that sort of thing. So there's, there's these songs that are about the end of the world. T.S. Eliot is a famous poet and, a, and an excellent poet. If you get a chance to check him out, do it. He wrote a poem called The Hollow Men, and at the, the last part of that poem, it says, this is how the world ends. This is how the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. And maybe if you paid attention to some things in, around, you might have heard that phrase, not with a bang, but a whimper. That's how it ends. Let, let's let's come, come forward a little bit. This is kind of, kind of stretching out into history. Um, movies and TV shows definitely show that we have this fascination with the end, with the end of the world. Um, the day after tomorrow, how about Independence Day with our boy Will Smith and, and the, the thing blows up, the, the aliens blow up the White House and, and they finally kill him and everything. The road was this dark, kind of post-apocalyptic movie. Um, the Matrix really was about the end of the world in many ways. The world's ended. Uh, this is the end. Is a kind of a stoner comedy about the end of the world. And, uh, and I saw a clip from that, and it was like, if they, did, if they were nice to somebody, they got zapped up into heaven, which I thought, man, if that's it, well, that, that's, that's a lot easier than, than we thought. Um, and that's not it, by the way. <laughs> that's not how it works. Uh, Armageddon with Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, and they, uh, there's a big meteor c- crashing or coming towards, and they have to go explode it or blow it up. Outbreak was one about uh, disease and how it's going to spread airborne, and all these people are going to die. 28 Days Later, the scariest movie I've ever seen, I think, if you know what that is. It's kind of like World War Z, which is another one, fast zombies. Um, we, zombies, we've got a zombie thing these days, so you might have heard of the TV show, The Walking Dead, right? So, The Walking Dead, it, it's essentially the end of the world, essentially the apocalypse, there's only handfuls of people left. This world seems like it's ending, and people are just, just surviving. There's a lot more of them besides that. But, but again and again and again, we see this fascination with the end of the world. In, in the Simpsons movie that came out, I don't know, what, five or eight years ago or something like that, there's this, this great part where there's a church and a bar, and they're next to each other. And, and, and this thing starts coming over the whole city of Springfield, and, and they run out, the church folks and the bar folks, and they run out and they look up and they're watching it. And it looks like it could be the end of the world. And so the church people run into the bar, and the bar people run into the church, and uh, they switch spots, you know. And so the, the bar folks have to repent, and the church folks get a little fun. I think that's what the, the idea is there. <laughs> uh, you know, we've been good enough for long enough. Let's, so um, not, not only, though, in, in culture and pop culture, in media, also in science. We think about the end of the world. Scientists talk about our own Earth and how our sun will eventually run out of energy and burn up. Now, probably you don't have to worry about it. In the near future, your kids or grandkids, uh, they say an estimate is like 5 billion, with a B, years from now, the sun will, will uh, start dying, and when that happens, it explodes, and then we're, we're, we can't live on this Earth anymore. It's a bad deal for us. So 5 billion years, and then you, you kind of zoom out to bigger, and the universe... The universe, scientists say, uh, will eventually suffer uh, sort of a death, an end. All of the stars will kind of blow up like that, and it's called the heat death of the universe. It sounds like a good time, right? Everything, everything burns and, and melts, and it's the heat death of the universe. But that's 10 trillion years from now, maybe. You know, that, who knows? It's kind of like throwing a rock into the dark. But, but that, just to say, even science says, no, no, there's an end. Like, the sun won't last forever. It burns out. Stars burn out. How about this, religiously, um, the Mayan calendar. Remember, December 21st, 2012, the end of the world's coming, and all the headlines and all the news sites, whether they're legit ones or whether they're just silly tabloid ones, and just all this stuff, all this hype about the, is it coming, and then there's a movie that comes out the day after tomorrow in and, and 2012, and they, they, they make some money off that thing. Um, the Hindus believe that there could be a massive flood at the end of the world, and then a new world starts after that. Um, 
Norse mythology, the Viking folk, which are kind of my people. I'm originally from Minnesota, and so, uh, you know, my football team is the Vikings, but also, like, you know, my, my whatever, Scandinavian brethren. They, their, their end of the world is called Ragnarok, and there's this big wolf that comes and eats Odin, who is kind of a god, and, and, and it chomps him up, which is a really bummer for That's your god, and he gets eaten by a big wolf. To me, that's like, that's... It's not a very good god. But Odin gets eaten, kind of the father or creator of all things. And Thor, whom you might have heard of, he he has to fight a big serpent. And he he kills the serpent, but he dies in the process. And essentially, all these gods and demigods are dying, and the world descends into chaos. And that's why Vikings are cheerful people, right? Because that's the end of the world for them. Um, So so that's, that's that's how it is. There's all these mythologies, all these places in culture where we see the end all over the place. Now, in the Christian world especially, we really grab hold of it. We have good reason to. The Bible tells us that, that history is moving towards something, towards the end of something, towards, it has a purpose. It's not just random. And, and the Christian book world and publishing world really took notice of that. In 1969, this guy named Hal Lindsey wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And in The Late Great Planet Earth, 1969, he's, he predicts, I think sometime in the 80s, that the world would end. And that book... That book was on the New York Times bestseller list for 10 years, until 1979. That is a lot of cash for predicting the end of the world. And, and so the Christian industry kind of perked up, said, oh, this could be a good idea, let's do this. And all this stuff started coming about, the end of the world, the end, which, what are the signs, Who, who's doing this, who's, who's the Antichrist, who's this, all that stuff came out. And the books being published in radio broadcasts and TV shows, and, and et cetera, et cetera, a lot of stuff. If you, what I found too is great. 88 reasons, this is a book, real book, 88 reasons why the world, why why the rapture will happen in 1988. That sold a million copies. It was written in the 80s. A million copies, okay? 88 reasons. Now, he was wrong, and it didn't happen, and in 1989, he wrote another book, and it sold 750,000 copies. So my question is, who buys the book from the guy who had the, f- the failed prediction? That seems, that seems, either Christians are very gracious or very gullible, one of the two. But, but man, like, he, he makes more money off that and, and that sort of thing. But uh, that, that's, that, that's our fascination with it. And then, a little more currently, the Left Behind book series. If you've ever heard of that, Left Behind, uh, it's a series. Originally, it was going to be a series of seven books. And then they sold, they, they, they came out and they just came huge hits, bestsellers, and they're like, seven, we need more like 13 books to really finish the series. And they did, they made it into like a series of 13 and, and again, made a bunch of money and a whole bunch of things. And, and uh, there was even a, a Bible with a commentary in it written by the authors of like how, how our left behind books fit with the, the Bible. And uh, anyway, all that stuff, right, that, that's, it's there in our culture. Um, there was a left behind movie with K- Kirk Cameron was from Growing Pains, if you know that. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't know who Kirk Cameron is. But now there's a new Left Behind movie coming out soon. And I think they've made a stellar choice for the lead actor for this Left Behind movie when all these crazy things happen. It's Nicolas Cage. <laughs> so, so, whatever you think about the end times, well done, movie makers. That's, that's the right choice, I think, for the, that actor. When it, when it goes down, you want Nick Cage at the, at the forefront. Um, <laughs> but... But, so, I I started with this question, why? Let me just give three quick reasons why I think we have a fascination with the end of the world. And then we're going to jump into our 1 Corinthians text. One, um, this world is hard. It's broken. There's pain here. There's suffering here. And so, it's easy for us to desire and imagine an escape from our suffering. I think that's what the end of the world can bring. It's an escape. 
That's one. Number two, uh, a lot of folks just feel like their life is pretty purposeless, meaningless. I don't, I don't really know what I'm here for. I've got this job I don't like, or I have these troubles with these people or friends or family, or, or I feel insignificant and I can't, can't get out of this rut. But if the end of the world comes then maybe I will be given this bigger purpose. I can be this kind of hero, this rescuer, you know. I can kill zombies, at least, you know, that sort of thing. Like, I really think there's something underneath it about purpose when the end comes. Maybe I can do something good. And, and then for that last part with Christians, Christians alone, who have a lot of theology developed about the end, some of it good, some of it not good, some of it in a lot of those books, uh, that's written about all these things and all these guesses and all these failed predictions, a bad idea to predict when Jesus is returning, um, that sometimes we treat it as a reason for vengeance. So, so vengeance in the sense that uh, I don't like somebody in my life. I'm a Christian. They're not a Christian. And when the end comes, I get to say, told you so. Look who's right now, huh? I was the one that was right. You thought I was crazy with all that beast stuff, but now look who's laughing, man. I'm, I got raptured, and you're still down there. That's, that's how it can work sometimes. And, and the reality is we have to be really careful that that doesn't come out of that, that heart we have behind that when we think about the end and why we rejoice in it, that it's not just escapism or it's not just finding our purpose in something that really isn't biblical. There's much deeper and better purpose in the Bible for us. And, and three, that the vengeance aspect, we don't just want to get revenge on people we don't like and kind of tell a big, say a big cosmic, told you so. That's not how it should be. So um, that, that's, that's sort of a, the, the window into our world and into the culture of how this looks with the end times. Let, let's move to our, our text. Before we do, we're going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians 15. But uh, before we do that, I just want to share this. Uh, this is the story of the kingdom in some ways. And here's a, here's a story from our world that hope, hope illustrates some of that. Uh, in World War II, there was a day called D-Day. And that happened June 6th, 1944. D-Day was the day of decisive turning point in the battle in World War II, in the whole war, in the European front. So June 4th, or sorry, June 6th, 1944, here's what was going on. There were 5,000 boats going from England to the shores of France. That's how this happened, 5,000. They were carrying 150,000 men and nearly 30,000 vehicles across this French Channel. There were six parachute regiments, over 13,000 parachute guys in, in 800 planes being dropped. And they dropped 13,000 bombs on the, on the coast of Normandy before they even began the assault. Soften them up a bit. Um, but by nightfall of June 6th, that was in the morning of June 6th, by nightfall, almost 10,000 men had died or been wounded. Allied soldiers. But more than 100,000 had made it ashore. And, and with that, they started capturing the German soldiers at the rate of about 30,000 every month from June all the way to December. Now here's what was happening there in D-Day. Everyone knew it. If we can get a foothold on Europe, on the shores of France, where Germany has total control, where the Nazi powers have total control, we can win this war because we will push in and they won't be able to stop us. But if we can't get a foothold, we could potentially lose. It was a risky move, and it was really, the whole thing was hinging on this, and it worked. And they got a foothold, and they stormed the beaches of Normandy, and it was D-Day. Now, the, 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 surrender, the surrender treaty wasn't signed till May 8, 1945, a, a little less than a year later of that date. That was called V-Day, Victory Day. 
So D-Day and V-Day. Don't, I, don't know what v, I don't know what D means, by the way. It just means D-Day. Um, so, so if you ask somebody, though, in that period, that time period, what's going on with the war? If you're an allied person, what's going on with the war? That person can say, we're winning the war. Or even more decisively, they could say, the war has been won. We've landed at Normandy. We are pushing our forces into Europe. We are going to win this war. Now, it hadn't been officially done, but for all intents and purposes, the war was done. The decisive victory had been won at D-Day. That is a helpful picture for us. It's a helpful picture about the kingdom of God because this is how it worked. Let's read, let's read our, our text here. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I'm going to just read 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Verse 24 Then comes the end. When he, meaning Jesus, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then comes the end, verse 24, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And so here's sort of a a flyby of what the story of the kingdom is. Okay, this is going to be really quick. God creates the world. He creates Adam and Eve. He says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1, and 28. Subdue the earth and take dominion over this whole place. There's this garden, this beautiful garden of Eden. It starts there, and they're supposed to be, be fruitful, have children, and multiply more and more humans, and spread this garden all over the earth. Take dominion of the whole earth. You are the ones at the top of the food chain. All the animals and fish and birds and the plants, they're all under you. Essentially, God is saying, I have created something beautiful, very good, and I'm giving it to you, Adam and Eve, to be king and queen of this place. But then, the fall happens. And what happens in the fall? They trust in the deception of the serpent. They believe the lie of Satan. He says, did God really say, won't you be gods if you just eat this fruit from this tree of knowledge of good and evil? And they do it. And the fall happens. The first sin, the disobedience of God the dishonoring of God, who is the true king, and the obedience to Satan. Now, when you, when you obey someone, just know that this is the dynamics, that this is how it works. In one sense, you bow to them because they say do something, and you do it. That's, that's what happens in obedience. So they bowed to Satan. They, they essentially worshiped Satan. When they did that, when they did that, the kingdom that God had given them was given over to Satan. He stole it. He took it from them. He took the dominion in many ways from them. And everything fell and crashed. Not only the relationship with God ruined, but their horizontal relationship was ruined. That's, that's what happened at the fall. Not just personal sin, but cosmic, cosmic problems, cosmic fall into sin and destruction and chaos. And sin brings death. So, through, through thousands of years then, we see these stories of God sending people to help redeem and give grace on this world and this earth. But they all fail ultimately. 
Sometimes Israel, the people of Israel, they would show the goodness of God, but most times when they showed it, it would start to bless them, and they'd get higher, and then boom, they'd fall again. That was how it worked, cycle after cycle after cycle. All of these cycles of creation and fall and redemption are crying out for one who will not fail, and that's Jesus. And so on that day, a man came to town, and it was the Son of God. And Satan took him, and tempted him. Let's try to stop this before he even starts. That's what the devil's saying. If I can get him to worship me like Adam did, then we'll be good. Luke 4. Satan takes him to a, 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 high, a hill and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. You can just hear the lies slithering out of Satan's mouth. But... Part of that, I think, actually is true. When he says, all these kingdoms of the world are mine, I think he's telling the truth because he took them. The kingdom, they have been delivered to me. He stole them from Adam and Eve, the rightful owners. But Jesus does not fall. Jesus does not obey Satan. He does not bow to Satan. He resists. And not only does he resist, he brings a different kingdom. The kingdom of God breaks into this world. And he starts healing people. He starts preaching the truth. Things start happening in people's hearts. They start believing in him and following him. And they start worshiping God and glorifying God for these actions. And the kingdom of God has come upon you. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. That's how Jesus talks. That's the story of the kingdom. And he dies on the cross for the sins of his people. And, and, and in that, that Saturday, after that Friday of his death, had to be one of the, the greatest parties, the biggest demonic kegger that's ever been. Right? They, they thought they won. Satan's, I've been killing people left and right. For all of history, I'm just killing the people that God sends to me. Just killing them, no big deal. Deceiving this guy, deceiving this guy, killing this one, making this one fall into sin. It's, it's easy. And now, I've done the ultimate. I've killed the Son of God. But, on that Sunday, the sun is just starting to come over the horizon. This massive stone is rolled away. And the man who came to town, the man who died on the cross, is the man who walks out of that tomb Risen, Jesus, the Christ, who says, I am not only the Messiah, I am Lord, and I am the Lord over death and sin, and I have conquered it. That, that was our D-Day, the resurrection of Jesus. And then, uh, V-Day hasn't happened yet. So we live between D-Day and V-Day, and what do we say? We call it the already not yet of the kingdom, and if, if you want to know This is how we proclaim it. People say, what's going on with Christianity? And we say, the war has been won. But the final surrender of Satan and evil has not happened yet. It will happen. It's coming. It's not yet happened. That's the story of the kingdom. Let me read this quote from George Eldon Ladd about death and about the kingdom. Everywhere one goes, he finds the gaping graves swallowing up the dying. Tears of loss, of separation, of final departure stain every face. Every table, sooner or later, has an empty chair. Every fireside, a vacant place. Death is the great leveler. Wealth or poverty, fame or oblivion, power or futility, success or failure, race, creed or culture, all our human distinctions mean nothing before the ultimate and irresistible sweep of the sieve of death, which cuts down all. And whether the mausoleum is a fabulous Taj Mahal or a massive period, uh, pyramid, or an unmarked forgotten spot of ragged grass or the unplotted depths of the sea, one, face, one fact stands. Death reigns. 
but he, but he doesn't stop there. Apart from the gospel of the kingdom, death is the mighty conqueror before whom we are all helpless. We can only beat our fists in utter futility against the unyielding and unresponding tomb, but the good news is this. Death has been defeated. Our conqueror has been conquered. In the face of the power of the kingdom of God in Christ, death is helpless. It could not hold him. Death has been defeated. Life and immortality have been brought to life. An empty tomb in Jerusalem is proof of it. This is the gospel of the kingdom. That's our good news. Death doesn't win. Jesus wins. And so that's where we are, where we are right now in this period, in this very day, this Sunday. We are already conquerors, yet not yet fully fulfilled in the kingdom. It's not yet fully done because we all know there's still sin, there's still brokenness, there's still ugliness. It still happens in this world. So let's then place ourselves in this timeline. I'm going to use like a few of these props up here, actually, these, these stands. And, and, and we're going to look at some places in the end times, look at a few elements in the end times that are disputed. And I'll do my best to explain them. Uh, if this music stand is creation, this is when it starts. And this microphone right here is the resurrection. Okay, creation and then the resurrection. And this time, all the way to here, to this guy, is when Jesus returns and everything changes and everything ends. Okay, so right in the middle here, I'm in between the resurrection and the end of all things when Jesus returns. And my, my little stand here will represent the millennium. Okay, so first, first point is the millennial views. What are they? You may have heard these terms. Pre-mill or amill or post-mill, millennial Premillennial, and then maybe even heard a term like dispensational. Maybe not. It's hard to say, but you've heard of it for sure. The Left Behind books are all dispensational in their theology. So here's how this works. They're all about when does Jesus return? In Revelation 20, it says there's this thousand-year period in which Jesus reigns on the earth, and there's this this period where Satan is um, is bound. And he can no longer deceive the nations. And his, his main power is taken away. And, and so, um, so that, that's the period of the millennium, this thousand years. And so the question is, well, when does this happen? And premillennial people say, here's the resurrection of Jesus. And they say, well, um, here's how it works. Jesus returns right here, before the millennium, before the thousand years. And when he returns then, um, the people who are believers at the time get raptured. And there's kind of two different views about how they get raptured. And then this thousand-year period happens. And at the end of the thousand-year period is when the big war, Armageddon, happens. And all of the demons and all, Satan gathers all these people of the world who don't believe in Jesus. And they fight against Jesus. It's a big army, the biggest battle ever. It actually ends pretty quickly, not to be a spoiler, but that's just how it, how it works. When you fight Jesus, you don't, you don't, you don't win. So um, that's what happens at the end of that millennium, okay? Now, on this side of it, some believe that there's a seven-year tribulation. In fact, this, this view does, pre-mill view, that there's this really intensified persecution of the church and of the people of God. Some think that the rapture happens before the seven-year period, which is kind of the most popular thing you might have heard if you're just picking this up in culture. You've got your books, left-behind books. You've got your, the ideas of um, the kind of picture of someone standing here, and all of a sudden, whoop! And they're gone, and there's a pile of clothes and shoes. Like planes are crashing, and cars are swerving, and that sort of thing. And, you know, friends are, friends are hanging out, and then all of a sudden, boom, one of their friends is gone. That's the rapture, the, the, the pre-tribulation rapture, okay? Um, which, in and of itself, would be, would be, I think, bizarre enough. And then you've got this idea that the clothes are still there, so they're all naked going up. I don't know. <laughs> People are like, dude, naked? Um, 
So, and, and, and the point is that those are all people who are believers in Jesus. That's what, the, that's what this view thinks, and, and they're going up to heaven. Jesus has called them up, and then this really intense thing happens. Some in that view say, no, no, that doesn't happen in the beginning. It happens after this persecution, but before this thousand-year period. Okay, that's pre-mill. Next one is called amillennial, which awe is like um, amoral, meaning like you don't have morals. So in some ways, it's sort of, it's a little misleading, but that they don't believe in a millennium. It's true, it's like a seeing the millennium, this thousand-year period in Revelation, as symbolic, meaning it's not actual a thousand years. It's, it's a long period of time. And um, that would mean that Jesus re- resurrects here. He, re- he rises from the dead. There's this period, and, and the millennium starts. This is sort of resurrection and Pentecost right over here. The Holy Spirit falls on people. And then this whole thing is a millennium, and then Jesus returns right here. So you subtract the rapture, and kind of getting floating up, because the, the, really the only thing that happens is Jesus comes back, and, and we meet him in the air, is what First Thessalonians 4 says, and that's, that's a true thing. Um, so that's how amillennial people would see it. It's symbolic. Now that means that we are in the millennium right now, for those who view amillennial, view it that way. Um, meaning that, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered Satan, he, 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 Satan was bound, and the power he had before the resurrection was greatly minimized, and he can't deceive the nations, and he's been thrown into a prison, as it were. It's a metaphorical, but a prison, um, and, and, and therefore, he doesn't have the power he had. And so, on millennials would say, look, look at our missionary efforts. Look at the world. Look at how the gospel has gone out. The Great Commission is being fulfilled. We are here now because Jesus reigns. That makes sense. Um, all of these views, by the way, have a lot of biblical evidence, okay? There's not one that's, that's totally in left field. None of these are, are heresy or anything like that. I think some are stronger than others, personally, but just know they all have biblical evidence. Last one, post-mill, where Jesus rises from the dead, and we've got this time, but Jesus doesn't come back before a millennium. He comes back post, after the millennium, and so it looks like this, um, kind of like, like this. So, so the world's going on. It's been a couple thousand years and then there's this time when, when through the gospel and through the Christianizing of the world, things get better and better and better. And they call it the golden age, essentially. Some, at some point, no one really defines it too clearly, we enter into a golden age when, when things in the world are good, when it really fulfills the descriptions of the millennium, that, that Jesus is reigning, that Satan is, is bound, justice is happening in the world, there's peace, there's no more wars. Now, there's still s- sinners during that time. There's still sinful people, but... Um, they're not reigning. It's not this chaotic, uh, it's not this horrible things happening of, of war, etc., and injustice. So that's post-millennial. Um, like I said, all these views have, uh, have, have biblical evidence and um, pre-mill, amill, and post-mill. Now, just, you know, obviously we have Mill Avenue in Tempe, and so no, like, you know, uh, hey, dude, are you pre-mill or post-mill right now? Like, you know, it's, it's not, not quite that. But, but um, the reality is, like, like there's, there's a lot of historical evidence for all of these, and there's differences. Sometimes the pre-mill, pe- pre-mill people tend to view the world more as sliding downward. It's a, it's a steady decline, getting worse and worse and worse. And the only thing that really changes it is the return of Jesus. Amillennialists uh, are a little more optimistic, but sort of, I think, kind of optimistic slash realistic, and there's, there's two kind of timelines, concurrent things happening. The kingdom of God is spreading, and Jesus is conquering, and the gospel is going out and winning people and winning souls and changing lives and really changing culture, but at the same time, it's realistic about, but things are bad. And so it's almost like uh, an X, like this. Like, uh, the kingdom is growing, and uh, 
and things are still bad, and there's a lot of brokenness in the world. Post-mill is the most optimistic. Things will get better and better and better. And at the end of all this betterness from, from Christian influence, from the gospel, really, um, Jesus returns. And he returns to a world that's really Christianized. That's, those are those three millennial views. Some of you know a lot about it. Some of you may be just hearing about it for the first time. This is how, this is how we see the end. Now, um, in, in all of that, it's, it's important to know <clears throat> that, uh, like I said, all of them have biblical evidence, and all of them have, um, yeah, 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 really legitimate places to stand. This is not um, a closed-handed issue. This is not a place where if you get this wrong, you could be going to hell. It's not that, okay? Be really clear about that. It's okay if you're not sure where you land on, on this stuff. It's complex stuff. But one thing that is not okay is for you to simply ignore the Bible. We Christians are called to know God, and he reveals himself through his word. And so you should be reading your Bible, and you will stumble upon these things, and it will affect how you see the Bible, how you read the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the future, those things. Um, so that, that's how that works. I think... Um, for me, one of the most powerful pieces is that I believe there's, there's one return of Jesus. There's one general resurrection, which means all of us in this room and everyone who's ever lived in the history of the world will rise from the dead. Yeah, rise from the dead, bodily, physically. And it's at that point, that's when Jesus returns, bodily resurrection, and then there's the great judgment. They call it the great, great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. That's where that is. And that's where, that's where Jesus judges people according to their deeds but but mostly according to the book of life is your name written in the book of life are you trusting in jesus does his righteousness cover your sin and if it doesn't you suffer the punishment of your own sin some to eternal damnation and some to eternal bliss with god that's that's how it works that's the judgment i think those things happen at one time not, not two times, kind of, not, not so much the time where Jesus comes back here to rapture his people and then comes back later on to get them. So, so for me, I'll just, I, I, I can share this. I land in the amillennial kind of camp right there. I think, I think we're in it now. I think when Jesus rose from the dead, when the Spirit was given to us, we were given reign over the power of Satan, not alone, but through Christ. And the keys of the kingdom were given to us and all those things make sense. There's hey, there other problem texts for that? Absolutely. There's some hard things. So all of them have really strong biblical texts and then problem ones, and that just, that's just how it works. That's where I land. Wherever you land, know this. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for his people, and he's coming back to make all things right. We, we must land there as Christians. You don't get to not land there. Okay? So that's, that's how that works. Um, here's, here's one little picture. You might say, well, okay, this is all fine and good. Yeah, I know this is confusing, and so we're tackling this tough issue, but does it really matter to me? Here's a little, little story. My daughter uh, is three years old. She's, she's running around. She's starting to get a little speed, and that means she falls and, and gets hurt and hits her wrists. And she, she skinned her knee the other day. And at dinner, she, she says, Daddy, look at, look at, I got an owie. And it was a, her knee. And I said, oh, no, what happened? She said, I was running, and I fell. And it was bleeding, but now it's not bleeding anymore. And I said, that's because, that's because God, God has designed us to heal. Our bodies heal if we eat our food. So you better, so eat your food. So eat your kale. <laughs> yeah, really. And, uh, and, and so, you know, pretty, I don't know, pretty decent move for a dad. I'd actually say that was a good one. Um, but, but in that, this little picture, right? Some of us, some of us only look at the healing in that and say, oh, God is so nice and kind. And he's just, he's going to make everything all better. He's going to heal everything. 
And that we really weigh heavily on that. Some of us, probably more of us, to be honest, as American evangelicals, read the news and get cynical. And we, say, we only look at the skinned knee. We only look at the wound and the blood. This place is going to hell in a handbasket. This whole deal is, this is a sinking ship. Man, you better, you better get off when you can because it's not good. And I, I think we should be called to, to look, see both sides. We shouldn't be naive to the wounds of the world and to how this place has pain and hurts us. But don't forget that God is a healer. And when you bleed, he heals. That is what he does. And so let's be balanced in that to see both sides of it. Okay, so that's, that's millennium, pre-mill, all-mill, uh, and post-mill. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover, I think, just one more thing here for the sake of time. That's another issue here uh, in, in these end times discussions. And the issue is this. It's Israel. Um, where does Israel fit in this scheme? Where does Israel fit in the whole timeline? You've got Israel, which, by the way, I think when I say Israel, I'm just really curious, a little survey. How many of you think uh, of the country in the Middle East? Just raise your hand real quick if you, if you thought of that. I think some of you are lying, actually. I think a lot more of you thought that. No, uh, uh, the, the truth is, um, when, when Israel is said, it's not really national Israel. It's not political Israel, the borders that are drawn in the Middle East. It, it's the people. It's the Israelite people, or sometimes called Hebrews. We call mostly the Jewish people. And, and in that, the question is, where do they fit? Because they started with Abraham. God made this new people called Israel. And he was a father of many. And in that, the, the Israelites went through history, ups and downs. And God was with them. They were called to be a light to the nations. But obviously, you read through the New Old Testament, and there's a lot of failure. There's a lot of problems. Well, where do they fit? Now, that's a, that's a big part that really influences what, how you might think of this stuff with millenniums. Because the pre-mill folks, where Jesus comes back first and then there's a millennium, they, they often weight Israel, especially the ones called dispensationalists, where the rapture happens first, and the left-behind books are all published in heaven, and you read them. And uh, uh, that, that happens first. And then, and then at, the, at the backside of it, uh, all of Israel is saved, or in the millennium, all of Israel is saved. All of the ethnic Jewish people are saved. And they reign with God, and they're, they're the real chosen ones, and then all of the Gentiles that, that get in are kind of, um, get us like a provisional ticket. Like, you made it in the doors, good, but it's really about the Israelites. And, and so that's how they see it. They weigh it pretty heavily on that. Others would, would not weigh Israel, the ethnic people, as heavily um, and say, well, let's, let's make sure that Christ is the center of this and, and how that weighs. Now, that, that sounds unfair a little bit. But anyway, um, that, that's how it is. So they're weighted heavily. And, and I, I tend to fall, this is why I said that, I tend to fall in the latter camp, that I, I think Israel is important. Ethnic Israel really does have a role, and God will do something with them. Romans 9 through 11, we started. We're in, we're in Romans 10 right now, and so we'll get more into that too. But God has a plan for them. But their plan is always through Jesus to be saved, no matter what. No one, gets, no one gets to be reconciled with God and gets to heaven without Jesus, ever. No one, no matter what your blood is, no matter what your bloodline is. Um, here, here's why I think Israel, though, is really a better, better to be called the people of God. Not just ethnic Israel, not just Jewish Israel. Because when you read anything in the Bible, almost, you, you'll, you'll see Israel popping up, especially in the Old Testament, especially in things like the Psalms. You say, praise the Lord, O Israel. And you're like, well, that's not me, because I'm not Jewish. I think, I, I'm going to say, I think it is you, if you believe in Jesus. Here's why. Romans, Romans 9, verse 8, verse 7 and 8. Um, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
That's what he stresses, being named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what is that saying? It's saying that, that it's not the genetic line. It's not the blood that flows through your veins that, that marks you as children of God or not. It is your faith in the promise of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's faith. It's by faith. Okay, here's, here's one that's probably more explicit. Galatians 3, uh, verses 26 through, through 29. Um, Many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, meaning you believe in Jesus. And he says in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no, no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You get that? How do you know if you are Abraham's offspring? How do you know if you are, you are Israel? If you believe in the promise of the Messiah the promise of Jesus, then you become heirs. And if you're in Christ, you have believed and, and you're heirs of that. So I take those as, as sometimes they're called controlling passages. I think they're very important and we look back on all of history. So I get to read the Psalms and hear about Israel and House of Jacob and, and those things. And not every single time, but I think most times it's saying, when you see Israel, put in the words, people of God. You are the people of God. If you sit here now and believe in Jesus Christ, you are the people of God. We are the people of God. And therefore, we get all the benefits that Israel had in the Old Testament, and we are, we are the church. And I, like I said, I think there's a plan after this, especially for ethnic Israel as well. That's kind of a, that's a, kind of a different story, I suppose. Um, but that's, that's where I go with all of that uh, for those two big things, the millennial positions and, and, and Israel. And I want to say again, all of them have legitimate biblical positions. Wherever you land, Land in your Bible. Read your Bible. Wrestle with your Bible. Talk to your friends. Be in fellowship with others. What do you think of this? Why do you think this? And, and read, read some passages right in their context and then reach out beyond them and go to other passages. And what is this referencing? Is there a prophecy here? Is there an Old Testament passage or a New Testament passage? And how does this guy talk about this? Do that. Do some work and keep, keep staying in your Bible. That will honor God. And when you do that, be prayerful in that time. So last, last part. What is the purpose of the end? What is the purpose of all this discussion with my little stage set up here and the millennial and Israel? Why? I think here's why. Um, the, the word end is the word, Greek word telos. It's the same word actually used in telephone. That's a little Greek transliteration. Telos and phone. Long distance, long voice, noise. But telos has another meaning which is goal, purpose, the end of something, the race. When you're running a race, you get to the end. It's not just so you can stop running. It's that you had a purpose of finishing something you wanted to do. And that's what I think the end is many times here. The end times, the end of the end. What's the purpose of the end? I think this is it. God has exalted above all things his name and his word. And so Jesus' name and his revelation to us through the Bible is exaltive of all things. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And not just the knees of humanity and mankind. But, but sickness will bow 
and every war shall end, and conflict in families shall be reconciled, and, and every hatred will be abolished and replaced with love, and every temptation will be destroyed, and the exploitation of young girls will be utterly ended and punished forever. And the swords shall be made into plows, and battlefields are made into gardens, and bombs are made into bowls of food, so that famine turns into feast, and filthy water is made clean, and tears are wiped away, and all pain is replaced with joy. And all the skills and talents that you have shall be used perfectly for good and not for evil. And all your work will be full of happiness and satisfaction and goodness. And your gifts, the gifts that God has given each of you, will manifest in beauty and in truth and in love. You will love your neighbors. You won't fight with your neighbors about music that's too loud or a property line. There won't be passive-aggressive insults with coworkers or out-and-out fights with your brothers and sisters and your family anymore. All of this will end and turn into love and peace and joy, we will encourage one another in all things. And sin will be vanquished. That's V-Day. And Satan and his demons shall be abolished and punished. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is your future, Christian. So rejoice in it. Rejoice in the power of Jesus. He is with us already, and his kingdom is not yet fully realized, but his kingdom is coming. So let's live in light of that blessed hope. Jesus is alive. Jesus is returning. And Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's pray.